if there are any questions about the practices we did. For how many of you were those new, the practices of the parts of the body and the elements? How many had some previous experience? Yeah. Any questions? And I'll say, I'll say some more about those. But I wanted to give some exposure because they're very interesting, right? And they're also, they're, it's the, um, they're so traditional. If you went to monasteries in Asia, Thailand, other places like that, that's what you'd be asked to do. Be asked to do a lot of those. And it's interesting to ask why we don't do them so much here. Parts of the body or the elements, or we certainly don't do the charnel ground contemplations, which I haven't, I didn't, you know, bring a bunch of corpses here. Would have had to have been in the write-up and would have had to have been truth in advertising. Okay, please. Oh, I have a question. Sure. Um, Maybe use, use the mic. My question is that I do this um, progressive relaxation. Yeah. And I do, is that similar to this? Uh, progressive re- relaxation will be where you move the, from the top of the head to the, to the toes. We do it, I do it from the toes to the top of the head. Yeah. Um, here, we're, it, it's different in some ways. Okay. It could have a similar effect. How many people found this relaxing? How many of you found it overly relaxing, <laughs> coupled with lunch and the time of day? <laughs> okay, so this is where some of you took, uh, explored the uh, mindfulness of the lying posture, which, uh, which completes the four postures, by the way, so very good. Um, yeah, so uh, it can be very relaxing. Yeah. Here, what we're particularly wanting to do is actually know very clearly which body part it is, and stay with it. So this is this is the part of the aspect I said. There's an active aspect of the mindfulness practices and the receptive. The active aspect is we actually focus uh-huh. there and we stay there and we know this is my hair, this is my uh, this is my ear, this is the bone, and so forth. So it has a purpose that's different. Okay. It, it it can be relaxing and generally mindfulness practice can be deeply relaxing, uh-huh. but the purpose here is to actually uh, see clearly the different parts of the body. Yeah, that's a good question, thanks. Uh, please, in the back. Hi, my name is Kent. This uh, is a little more general. <clears throat> I'm looking at uh, Satipatthana, yeah. second paragraph. Where he goes with the purpose of all this, he's, it's like selling snake oil. If you, you know, we left out a few parts there. It says for the purification of beings, you know, the ending of dukkha, realization of true way nibbana. Mm-hmm. But there's no, just do these practices, which are all skillful means, mm-hmm. and exactly which way they work. So we're purifying our. We want to purify avijja, uh, not clear seeing. Mm-hmm. And, and that in and of itself is enough? The, As, uh, yeah. Yeah, so the question is, maybe what's the larger purpose of the mindfulness practices? Is that, is that fair, Ken? The larger purpose and... Yeah, we want to know the purpose of all this, right? Yeah, it's and, purification. And does, do these mindfulness practices, such as the ones we've been doing, are they adequate for this full spiritual development? Yeah, he says so. Yeah. I mean, if we take him at his word. Yeah. It does say so, yeah. 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 So are you asking how is that the case? Yeah, they, they left out the how. You know, it's like well, I'm, I'm holding up this snake on. Drink this and all your troubles will be over. It doesn't say how it works. Yeah, so there, So Ken's question is, what what is the mechanism for how this works? Is that, is that fair? Yeah, fair enough? Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate the uh, skepticism. I think, I think it was both, there's both uh, interest, and I think even though you're a little bit sarcastic, I think a lot, I hear a lot of respect in the question. And, uh, uh, but also wanting to know some of how this works, right? That's really the essence of it. Is that, is that 
Okay. Yeah, I guess my question basically is it's just enough to see clearly the nature of your experience, the nature of your mind, and that's it. Done. Yeah, if you see clearly uh, your experience, is is that enough? Okay. So um, to get to give a full answer, we probably need a day. So let's see how I construct a three or five minute uh, response or shorter. If I was a Zen master, I would go, <laughs> next question. <laughs> but I never got that far in Zen, so, uh, so I'll give a longer response. Okay. Um, so how does, yeah, it's really a good question. How does mindfulness work? Um, First of all, I think that there are a lot of uh, different levels of the training and that remembering that the mindfulness is part of a uh, more complex path. And so, um, but this is, this is a key method. The meditation is a key method, but it does come out of a context where the, all the factors of the Eightfold Path are crucial and play, play an important role. For example, um, the ethical dimension, very, very crucial. And in fact, the, um, some, some uh, scholars think that the, to actually do mindfulness, you actually have to be already have done quite a bit of spiritual work, even to get started, because otherwise your mind's not going to be able to still enough. And, and to come to a certain level of stability of mind and concentration may presuppose uh, a certain amount of what we sometimes call character work or personal development or psychological work. I certainly know from teaching people, including at like two-month retreat where you have extremely dedicated people, that there remain psychological issues that are strong that make it hard to be present. Uh, in general, or sometimes with certain phenomena. You know, one of the areas that I work on a lot, some of you know, is I work on the theme of the judgmental mind a lot. And I teach retreat on that and day-longs and so forth. And that comes up a lot. One of the reasons I've been teaching it is that uh, it's a big one for so many people in this culture and in all sorts of different ways. And so sometimes... Uh, Sometimes we can give the instructions for mindfulness and it's actually hard to be mindful, especially of certain areas, or hard to be mindful in the way that is completely freeing and liberating. Essentially, what that's saying in that paragraph you referred to is that if we could really follow the mindfulness instructions over time, because some of you know at the end of the text there's actually a passage, we haven't got there yet, but at the end of the text there's a passage where it's saying, if you do this, see I'm paraphrasing, if you do this for seven years consistently, you really develop. No. Uh, if you do it for uh, seven months. No. If you do it for seven days, uh, you will, and, and do it really thoroughly, you will have free, full awakening. And um, I remember Jack Cornfield told the story of hearing that passage and thinking of all the things he was going to do after he was fully enlightened. <laughs> And he said, okay, seven days starts now. <laughs> oh, forget, forget that last half hour where I was figuring out what to do once I was fully enlightened and wasn't at all attentive. You know? <laughs> um, so um, there are those statements in the text uh, that sometimes one can actually come to awakening uh, that's really powerful quickly when the conditions are right. And so a lot of this is about uh, what makes the conditions right. What makes the conditions so that we can see things? And for most of us, there's a, there's, a, there's a gradual process where we have to stabilize the mind, have more concentration, certain kinds of just settling of our own being as human beings, which can occur through sometimes through having good work, having stable relationships, having, uh, you know, uh, working through some issues. Sometimes, and this is more, I'm talking, not so, I'm talking more about how I hold it, not so much the traditional understanding, because they, they didn't have the same language that we have of psycho psychology. 
Um, but I think it was understood traditionally that uh, if you could see really clearly into your true nature, into the nature and let go of somehow of a sense of being separate or a sense that my happiness lies in accumulating pleasant experiences, which is a dominant model in the U.S., right? If I just have enough of these good experiences, enough of the right meals out, or enough of the right relationship, enough of the right vacations, then happiness is mine. Does anyone follow that? (laughs) And so... um, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of presuppositions here about how do we actually get to the place where we don't believe all that stuff. Then you can see clearly, and then there can be freedom. That's the idea. So there is a model that can happen quickly. And there's also a model and that I think a lot of us are trying to explore in the West of what does it take actually to keep learning? And, what are, and, and how does mindfulness help? What other tools are important? And, and how do we actually learn? how when we do sustained mindfulness, you know, and I could, I could speak a lot about this in terms of, for example, something like uh, working with judgmental mind, right? Which, you know, I define judgment as the kind of reactive, typically negative comments about oneself, right? Has anyone ever had those? About a quarter of the group, right? <laughs> okay. And the other three quarters, may you may be judging yourself for why you didn't raise your hand. So, um, but, uh, you know, what I found there is that uh, actually just being mindful of the judgments isn't quite enough. Now, maybe if we could have the penetrating mindfulness that's sometimes talked about, we could really know it. But what, when I work with people, we try to be mindful of when I'm judging, right? But we also bring in quite a lot of other tools. We bring in a lot of the heart practices just to have there be some compassion for our minds, right? For how we are. And to hold everything with, with a good heart. Uh, and so in, those, in that context, sometimes I can actually see, oh, I do this. And the whole idea of the mindfulness is that when we see a negative pattern, enough, something lets go. That's, if you want the mechanism, that's it, <laughs> right? If we see it enough, now, enough can mean any time from one to uh, 200,000 times, right? And it's gonna depend on other conditions that are there. But for most of us, a lot of repetition is necessary, and the mindfulness seems to have to occur many, many, many times, even with the same material. I have to notice that I'm judging. Oh, that's the 10,000th time I've noticed myself judging myself harshly, right? And I sometimes have to notice that, and it can be. I notice it enough, and on the 10,001st time, I go, oh, this is such a drag. I really don't want to do this anymore, you know? So there's a mystery. There's a necessary mystery here in terms of the mechanism that we, you know, I think we all know this, right? We can we can be looking at something over and over and kind of getting it, but kind of not getting it. And then the mindfulness keeps on working and something just clicks, right? So there's something mysterious like that. And sometimes when it clicks, um, some pattern has been worked through. There's a, that's, you know, short, we can call that purification. And again, I could see, we can see it, I'm using the example of the judgments. I see, oh, I judge myself like that when I, when I have a hard time, I judge myself for having a hard time, right? And I've noticed that now 500 times. And it seems to make a little difference, but not much. And then the 500 second time, there's something just clicks, right? It's mysterious. And I change. And mindfulness works like that. It, we sometimes call it the exhaustion method. So there's your mechanism. The mechanism is exhaustion <laughs> for how mindfulness works. Repetition exhaustion, having support. And then in that context, we can see clearly, and if the seeing goes deeply enough, we know that this is not good and we actually can shift. And sometimes we see it some, it changes a little bit, it helps, but it doesn't change. So that's kind of a long answer. Does that start to get at things? Yeah, I wasn't being sarcastic. I was just looking at paragraph two, stand alone. You brought in a lot of 
Yeah. Just to explain. Yeah. Right. Um, let me let me say one or two more things and get on to another question. So, there the actually it has to do. I wasn't planning to talk about this, but it has to do with what we call awakening or enlightenment. And maybe this is related to what you're saying. I, th- I think it is. Is that actually um, the repetition plays a big role in all of this? That actually having a moment of awakening means seeing the world without our usual conditioning. And to say what that means would take a little bit of time, but it means almost like having this quality of presence and awareness without the usual sense of, I want this, this is me, I'm doing something, I'm getting there. And we can have that sense, sometimes we have that in nature, or at certain moments in our lives when things just open up and there's this quality of beautiful presence. I imagine many of us have had those kind of experiences. And we we could call that a moment of awakening or enlightenment, And my experience has been that um, awakening or enlightenment for a moment is fairly accessible if we stay with it. Stabilizing awakening or enlightenment is way harder. And that takes takes time and energy. So that's, um, this is, this is a, yeah, I don't know if we're going around in circles, but does that make, is that connecting some? So what's, you know, we want, so we want to, a lot of our retreats, we try to have people have deep experiences because that taste of peace or clarity or opening or presence is really, really crucial to have. But then the real work is to continually uh, have that be more and more in our lives. And that's, that's challenging, especially in this culture. That's challenging. But that's, so I, I sometimes say uh, enlightenment is accessible and the real work is stabilizing enlightenment. A moment is, is possible. The real work is to stabilize it so it's there more and more. Okay. You had a question, uh, Jurgen. Actually, I had a comment. Uh, I mean, to take one line out of this. Yeah. Uh, my comment was to take one line out of this sutta is um, maybe misleading because perhaps the, the you know purification happens you know, when you do the work that's involved in this entire entire uh, sutta, and yeah. and here's this person who wrote a 300-page book on it. So, yeah. you know, maybe maybe the the real work is deeper than just looking at, you know, looking at one line for for some kind of realization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the comment is about maybe um, you know maybe we should really look to the whole text. But I um, I would say I think that uh, Kent's point is well taken to the point that this is a manual. This tells you what to do. It doesn't tell you the mechanism. So I think your point oh, is well yeah. taken in that way. That, and I was trying to give a little bit of explanation of how it actually works based on experience. This is a manual that tells you what to do. It doesn't give a scientific explanation of how it works. You know, it just says do it. And this was in a context where people you know, were around the Buddha. He reportedly was a pretty cool dude and you know, emanated all sorts of good stuff. And they said, uh, I think we trust you, Buddha. Uh, okay. Another question or two, and then I'll want to say some. Um, I have a question about actually like the physiology of sitting. Oh yeah. And um, I I come to meditation more from yoga, and I oh, yeah. know with repetition there is a strengthening. Yeah. Um, around the core. Yeah. And in this last practice, what I noticed is when I engaged my core more as I was sitting. I could, I felt less back pain and I felt like yeah. I could tolerate sitting longer. Yeah. And I am wondering about just, um, is, is, is there a mechanism with meditation where, I mean, I'm finding the longer sittings just quite uncomfortable. Yeah. And is there something that would be helpful to know about, like actually posture and sitting and what to engage and what not to engage? Yeah. So questions about uh, how to work with the body, posture, Longer sittings, noticing they can be uncomfortable. Some of that, I don't, I don't, how long have you been sit, doing sitting meditation? Just a few months. Just, just a like few months. Roll. So yeah. some of this just comes from staying with it. You know, staying with it and the body gets used to it. 
uh, the body gets used to being in a certain posture. Um, that being said, there are all sorts of practices which one can do. And generally, uh, you know, it's like your question. Sometimes, my experience certainly when I was sitting, was that there just are certain kinks in the body that over the time of sitting, they do get worked out. You know, doing yoga or qigong can be extremely helpful as a complement. You know, really doing stretching can be wonderful. We, on virtually all of our retreats, we offer uh, yoga or qigong because it's such an important complement. So helps tremendously with the body. When the mind is really, really attentive, uh, like I think you were saying when you were with your core, when the mind's really, really attentive, something seems to shift in the body when the mindfulness gets to a high level. And you can be sitting there and it can be uncomfortable and you kick into a higher level of mindfulness and suddenly there's some relaxation in the body. So it's, some of that also is mysterious. And there are a number of uh, different practices that one can do to work with the body. Um, they are not in this text. You know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, I've, I've studied some of the Tibetan practices or some of the energy practices, and they're beautiful, and they can be helpful to develop a really limber body, but they're, um, they're not necessary. Yeah. Maybe last one, and then we'll want to say a few other words. Hello. Hi. Um, my question was about um, the default nature or default state of consciousness that we have um, without being introduced to any of this yeah. uh, mindfulness. Um, and basically, because you, you use the word, um, you say that we're with our breath yeah. and we're with our heart. Um, so, and I kind of noticed that when you focus on a certain part of um, your body, you you kind of centralize your consciousness there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my question is, where is our consciousness centralized in our default state? Default state meaning the state when we're just walking around or yeah. at the computer? Yeah, or yeah. When, we're, when we're in that state of grasping yeah. uh, for pleasant and unpleasant experience. Yeah, what, what would your answer be? Um, I don't know. I, I, I was thinking about it, and <clears throat> it's kind of located behind my eyes, but um, it's more so, it's more so uh, just kind of uh, unaware. Yeah. It, it, would, it, would it be accurate to say it's centralized anywhere? That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, when I was describing myself as on, I, I use the words on automatic. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think there's real mindfulness anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Real, I mean, it's like when I was describing consciousness on a pole. Uh-huh. And I'm just walking around thinking all the time. Where is my conscious? Where is my awareness located? Yeah. Not really anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So does that does that seem right? Yeah, I guess so. It, it's just kind of a kind of an inquiry about. Um, I, I just, and I, it, it's very interesting to notice how you can centralize your consciousness. You know, you're. I mean, right now I feel like I'm behind my eyes, looking out. You know, but when I'm being mindful, I can put myself in my stomach or yeah. in my hands, you yeah. know, I can actually feel like, and, and I think it's really accurate to say that you're with, you're with that part of your body because it's really kind of putting yourself there, located there, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, your cognitive map or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, the uh, training that we're doing is uh, both to have us develop the capacity to intentionally bring awareness to a certain part of experience. Could be a certain part of the body, could be to the thoughts, to the emotions. And then we also develop the capacity simply to be present. Remember I said there's more of an active aspect of mindfulness practice and a more receptive aspect. The active is like we've just been saying, you know, I bring my attention to my stomach, I go through, I scan through the body, I do this, that's more active practice. And then there's also a quality of presence where there's just a quality of awareness which is not a doing. Mm. And, and again, my colleague Gil Fransdale says that this is actually the best way to interpret mindfulness, or sati, I should say. Yeah. That it's more like this presence, or what's sometimes called lucid awareness. You know, which is actually uh, not doing anything and not, uh, not actually trying to know anything. And that is what gets opened up by mindfulness practice. Mm. You know, that's quite, that's quite interesting. Mm.
Okay, let me say a few other things about these practices, and then we'll do some walking meditation and have a chance to move and do uh, uh, work with the uh, elements uh, outside. Hmm. As it were, with the elements outside. <laughs> so. Um, so I wanted to talk about this, uh, these further sets of practices. Remember, the morning we talked about, again, this is following the text. There are these three groupings that we looked at. The breath, number one. The four postures, number two. Number three is developing mindfulness during different activities. And I said that probably for most of us, those three are the main ones that we'll be doing in our lives, probably. Some of you may take to these other ones, and there's some other practices that we can do in terms of daily life. But in terms of mindfulness of the body, those are those certainly have been the primary ones for me in being mindful. So it's being mindful when I'm walking, when I'm at a meeting, when I'm talking. I try to be mindful when I'm teaching of my body. You know, one of my one of my mentors uh, uh, from the past, John Travis, uh, who's a wonderful teacher of the body, and I learned a lot with him. He gave me guidance when I was starting to do more meditation teaching. He said, uh, do your preparation, and then when you're ready to give a talk, be aware of your body, and be aware of your belly, and let your thoughts self-organize. But just keep your awareness in your body, and let your thoughts do what they will. Interesting practice. That's generally what I do. And it's interesting, and it's to stay grounded in the body. So there are different ways that we can stay in the body, and it's more challenging to be doing a complex activity and stay mindful of the body. So we train with the simpler ones. We train with just being with the breath, just being with the body, walking, and then over time, we can gradually bring body awareness into more complex activities, like talking, like uh, giving a talk, like being in an interaction, and so forth even potentially being at the computer. That's advanced practice. <laughs> the Buddha made that very clear. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, then we come to the fourth, fifth, and sixth practices, which I, just, which I wanted to cover in this session, which are ones we don't usually do at Spirit Rock. The first was, or this is the fourth of the practices, is the practice of being with the body parts. The fifth is being with the elements, which is done some. And the sixth is being uh, with decomposing bodies at charnel grounds or uh, could imagine being at an autopsy and also visualizing that. So this is a, and I, I want to say a word about each of these. Uh, just to, this is, again, this is where I'm trying to give you a sense of what's there in the traditional text, even if we're not doing these practices. Um, so the, you, if you read the text uh, for the parts of the body, which is on one of our handouts, uh, the one you know, the one that uh, has the foundations of mindfulness on it. Um, this would be under where is it? Number four. Let's see. And you can see in the in the text that the label for the section is called foulness, body the uh, the body parts, right? And in the text, this was done. Uh, this was done, as I mentioned, purposely. I think for two reasons. The first reason was to decondition people's attachment to the body. I think that foulness may not be the best translation of the term. The actual term is a subha. A in the in Pali or Sanskrit has the same meaning that it does in English, which means not. Like we have the words like amoral or uh, asymmetrical, right? It just means not. And same thing here. It means not suba. And suba means beautiful. So this is actually coming to see the body as not beautiful, more in the sense of seeing it neutrally without getting attached to it. I think in our context, this is a challenging teaching, and it's, it has its dangers. Uh, we can certainly misinterpret it. In our culture, again, this ties in with what I was saying about judgmental mind. Many of us 
have negative views of our own bodies, right? And so having a text which talks about learning to see the foulness of the body is a bit of a setup for some people <laughs> to uh, really get quite negative. And so I think the, um, the real purpose of this, I think, this is a little bit of cultural translation because it has a different meaning in that culture, okay? But I think for us, I would frame it as coming to see the body in a neutral way where we are, almost a scientific way, where we're, not, we're, we're neither overly attached nor overly repelled. And this is a practice that traditionally was designed in part for that, uh, to come to, uh, to come to see it, to come to see the body through its different parts so we have less of a, uh, a mind saying, oh, that body is so beautiful, or my body is so beautiful, or I want that body, or look at me and my splendor. <laughs> Whatever we say. <coughs> Whatever we say as we strut around, right? Like, well, you know. Anyway, I won't go that direction too much. Um, and so um, that's how I understand this, this text, that it's, it's about coming, in part, to have a more neutral sense of the body so we are less attached. Okay? And it ties in with some of the other practices also, because it's also to see the body not so much as a single unity, but as a multiplicity of many things combined and to have that more sense of the body as this interdependent collection of objects. I think that's, I would say, that's the, as I mentioned, that, those are the two intentions here. And again, it can be, uh, uh, it can be fascinating. There was, I remember, um, this is partly related to the theme of the decomposing body, but I, I remember, uh, you know, maybe, maybe many of us, how many, any, anyone may have the, the visible man? Remember that? When you were a kid? Anyone, I don't know if it's still, is that still around? No, it's gone. <laughs> but it's something where you made, this, you made this model and you had all the different parts of the body and you got to study all the different parts and you got to see it. And so it's, it's very interesting to see. Or it's also related to the, the last of the practices is about a decomposing body. I remember um, going to a film it was an experimental film by Stan Brakhage, who was a great experimental filmmaker. And maybe some of you have seen those. It was actually about a two or two, I think it was about a three-hour film of an autopsy. And about 80% of the crowd left within 20 minutes. <laughs> but some, there was some, I was, you know, I was like 20 years old or something in college. I was watching it. And there was something in me which was incredibly fascinated. And for the first 20 minutes, it was kind of hard, and I was saying, should I leave? And I was kind of struggling and saying, ugh, this is so... And then something shifted. And I stayed with it for the whole film. There weren't that many people who stayed. And I started to see it more as colors and forms and shapes. And there was something that shifted away from... Uh, kind of an, uh, an attached view where I was, I got out of my conceptual mind to some extent. I think that's partly what this is aiming at, just to be able to see the body in a different way. That's my take, at least. You know, um, If you want to look further into this, there's a website called 32 Parts. <laughs> One of the teachers who sometimes teaches here, Bob Stahl, some of you may know Bob, teaches in Santa Cruz, he, he's the main teacher who teaches the 32 parts of the body at, at Spirit Rock. And he has a website which gives an ex, a, a full explanation of a number of ways to practice it. So let's see, it's uh, just look under 32 parts. I think it's 32parts.com. 32 is just the number, not spelled out. Okay. So let me, let me mention... Uh, a little bit further about the elements and then about the charnel grounds. Again, the uh, purpose of the elements is similar. It's a little less focused on working with attachments to the body and a little more focused on seeing the body as uh, an interdependent set of changing phenomena. That's really what the model is. And also, like I said, to have the sense of 
of us being part of nature and we can see the elements outside, we can see the elements inside. And there can be, it can be a way of uh, practicing so that we don't so much just focus on here's the body, it's a concept, a solid body, and, and stay with that concept. So it's to see really the everything as changing and moving. I think that's again what the, what the main uh, purpose is. Uh, to see impermanence, to see interdependence. And similar with the uh, practices of the charnel grounds, which I have to confess I have not done. I have been with decomposing bodies. And uh, I have gone to the film that I mentioned. And, you know, it's a quite powerful. Has anyone sat with a, de- you know, I, I remember sitting with a decomposing animal for some time. You know, and it's it it staying with it. It really is powerful. This was a traditional practice that was designed. It's really partly to, again, uh, work with any attachments that we have to this body. And again, I think the direction is towards a balanced perspective. This isn't about developing aversion to the body or thinking the body is bad. But it's having a balanced approach where we see it as it is. We take care of it. We, uh, in, in a way, honor it as well. So I, again, I don't want to suggest that this that it can come in this text as being a little one-sided. And I think the, the way I would certainly work with it is more in a balanced way. And this last one on the charnel grounds also is about being cognizant of death. And so it's, a, it's an important practice. And in, uh, in other ways, some of you know, in other practices, we're invited to reflect on our own the reality of our own death, the fact that I will die. And we can do that in reflection. This practice has us also do it through visualizing ourselves as a corpse. And so it brings in that kind of ultimate dimension of our lives. I think the purpose is twofold. First, uh, to um, see accurately so we are less attached to the body. And secondly, to remind us that death is real and to help us to ask the question, what's important for me? So traditionally, reflections on death are often there to help us with a sense of perspective and have some urgency to engage in what's important. So not always a popular topic at Spirit Rock, but but quite crucial. I, I have done reflections on death regularly. And it actually is very, very helpful, just like a 10-minute reflection where I reflect on impermanence and death, the fact that I will die, the fact that others will die. I find it does both bring that into our lives, because you know, we know that our culture is generally death-denying, right? We know that, right? That we keep death its way out of the picture as compared with 100 years ago or most other cultures. And so it's partly to make it... I have found those practices very helpful, just simple reflections for 10 minutes you know, about how things change and how, on how death is real. And you may, you may find that useful. So let me stop there and just see if there are any questions about anything we've covered before going on to walking. Uh, please. This question is kind of philosophical, and I apologize for that late, okay. later in the day. Um, I'm going to kind of expose my very rudimentary understanding of Buddhism here, but um, I've been kind of cooking this question all day, okay. and then you started to kind of answer it in what you've been talking about in the last 10 or 15 minutes. This constant reflection on our own bodies... My my very basic understanding of Buddhism has taught me that we should be constantly working to rid our minds of that delusion, you know, that we're separate. Doesn't that reinforce it? To have mindfulness of the body? Of our own as, as individual. Um, so the question is, does, does mindfulness of the body reinforce a kind of illusion about being separate? Is that a clear way to say it? Yeah. Yeah. And your name? Kathy. Kathy. So thank you. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think the the where we're going with this 
is more toward, you know, the, the opposite of separateness uh, or a sense of being separate is more interdependence. And it's not the loss of individuality. So we could have, uh, maybe like you say, philosophically, we could have a sense of being really separate, independent, distinct. And we could have one opposite would be to be completely unified and lose our identity. But that's not really the direction here. It's really more the opposite is actually, it's actually taken to be seeing things realistically for what they are. And then there the opposite would be more of a sense of interdependence in which we acknowledge individuality, but we also acknowledge interdependence. And so we tune in to, uh, we tune into the body. And remember, this is part of a path towards that wisdom. And so we tune into the body and the mature understanding is, uh, you know, this is where these practices are going, particularly with the parts of the body, the elements and so forth. It's moving towards a sense of being more part of a dynamic flow of energy and interdependence. And that's, that's more the mature understanding. So there is individuality. It's not like a, the practice doesn't get rid of individuality. Uh, but it, it, does, uh, it does aim to uh, um, look at the limitations of thinking ourselves fully separate. Does that help? Not really, but I'll mull it over for a while. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's... Uh, if we, and remember that the key is the practice, it's not the words. That when we... it's staying with the experience of the body, not the thought of the body. That's what's key. We stay with the, and if we stay with the experience of the body, we come more to this interdependent flow. And so the direction is not stay with the body and focus on it as this distinct thing. It's more get into the experience of the body. If you stay with it fully enough, it will open up to an understanding. There we, that did it, didn't it? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, please. Just a question on the practical application um, uh, on a more mundane level. Yeah. When you get back from a work day in the evenings, yeah. I have no trouble meditating in the morning yeah. and being mindful. But when you get back in the evening, it's a challenge to keep the mind still and even to get to that level. Yeah. Uh, and, and clearly it impacts the quality of sleep. Yeah. And uh, so I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on how you would uh, perhaps uh, get back from that state, which is quite agitated, down to a level where you can even start to meditate, which eventually will help you get to a more stable state. Yeah. Yeah, So the question is about, uh, let's say, a full day of work. uh, I'm not sure what kind of work it is, but uh, probably it's a general question for most of us that uh, there's often a state of being kind of worked up, a little agitated, and finding it hard to meditate in the evening. Now, that's not a universal experience, but it's an experience for a lot of people. Yeah, I would say uh, this is where having a body practice could be really helpful. And something, it could be either yoga, qigong, or even just some basic exercise. I know for myself... um, when I've had a schedule which had me working like that, I would often, right after I finished that, do, I, you know, I went, go, would go back to my swimming. I would go swimming for half an hour, and it would, there's something about calming down the nervous system, which can then have a positive impact on the meditation. So find something, I would say, find something which calms your nervous system and kind of calms your system, lets your body come back more to balance. And could be a body practice, could be some kind of exercise. And just see what uh, does that for you. you know, do you have a sense of what might be? Yeah. Yeah. So th- I can't underestimate how valuable it is before doing sitting meditation to do a body practice. Really, really helpful. Okay. Last one in in, in the way back. Thank you. Um, uh, this conversation is a wonderful conversation to have. And one of the, for me, the mindfulness brings me to clear, clear seeing. And when I do have that clear seeing, I recognize myself in the other. 
Yeah. And that's where that, to me, that's that connectedness that is, yeah. you know, useful to moving the world to a, a, a different place yeah. of non-harming. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, thank you, thank you for bringing in that point. That's, yeah. that's great to say that one of, one of the results of mindfulness is that uh, when we really stay with our own experience, in this case today we're focusing on mindfulness of the body, there's often the insight that uh, I'm really looking more fully into human experience, and gosh, everyone shares this. And so it can be a direct counter. A lot of the conditioning in the culture is to be, I'm special. I'm really different. I'm distinct. I better choose the right clothes today so I can really show that off. Right? Uh, anyone know that one? Is that, am I accurate? <laughs> Is that, is that our conditioning? I think so. And, um, and so part of what happens with mindfulness, and this is also relates to that earlier discussion, is that when we actually just have sustained awareness of the basics of human experience, in this case the body, or it could be the elements, or the parts of the body, or just staying with the breath, or just noticing, oh, look at how my mind's working. And then partly it's very valuable in our communities to share and to see that there's tremendous commonality. We are much more alike than we think, right? We have, again, we have a culture which emphasizes individuality and that has its beautiful aspects. It also has its confused aspects, like, because we, we don't see the commonality uh, so much. And mindfulness can really do that. Again, it's very, you know, when I do work with the judgmental mind, it's one of the main benefits of people gathering together because everyone thinks when, he, when one looks at one's judgmental mind, my God, I have this weird mind that judges myself. I am uniquely flawed. And, and I find that with people. And then when they come together, they find, oh, everyone's kind of doing it the same way. <laughs> and I don't know whether it's misery loves company or, you know, but there's something about uh, just seeing that commonality which lets us more have a sense we're all in this together. We have very similar conditioning. We kind of want the same things. And how can we, how can we move in that direction? Is that just getting at what you were saying, really, isn't it? Yeah. That's a, it's a great point. And it's one of the fruits of mindfulness. And it's part of how that sense of feeling really, really separate starts shifting. When we just, and it's an insight that comes, oh, look at that. You know, I'm feeling uh, sadness now. Here's what sadness is. And we, if we really look deeply at ourselves, when someone else has the same experience, typically there's empathy and there's compassion. Right? That's, that's really how it works. Part of, again, the mechanism of how things happen. Okay. So, um, instructions now for walking. We're going to have about, uh, let's see, have about, uh, about 25 minutes of walking. Come back about 3.40. We'll have a bell rung about... Um, uh, eight minutes before. And for the walking, I'd like to invite you to uh, start with the walking meditation where you're just with the soles of the foot, with the walking meditation as you've been doing it. And do that for maybe five minutes or ten minutes. Try to see, be somewhat stabilized. And then I'll invite you to bring awareness. Start bringing awareness, if you can, of the four elements in the walking process. And you can do that by noticing, okay, uh, when we think of earth element, where is the earth element in walking? (laughs) We're stepping, you know, the solidity. Remember, the earth element is solidity. So when we step on the earth, we actually feel the earth, that groundedness, the solidity. And actually, sometimes when I... um, when I personally do walking meditation, I sometimes actually, I, not so much in connection with what I'm talking about, but I sometimes actually just walk through the forest back and forth, and with each step I say grounding, grounding, grounding. It's like coming to the earth, so feeling that earth element. Okay, then the water element is uh, fluidity. How, how, is, how do we feel that in the walking? What? Maybe the movement, the flowing quality of, of the walking, 
could be a sense of maybe of the lightness and so forth. How about the, the uh, fire element? Could feel sun on ourselves, could feel heat. It's a temperature aspect. And then the uh, air element. Could be the air, the flow. It's also the sense of movement. I think that has kind of an overlap with fluidity. But the movement through the air, you know, the, the walking, you know, the, the um, moving of the arms, moving of the legs. And so the invitation would be tune in to the four elements in the walking meditation. And then if you'd like to, you might just, and one way you can do this is walk, be with those elements as you walk. And then if you'd like to, you can also start opening up to the elements outside. You know, so you can say, let me start with the earth element. You could stop, actually, and just stop, feel the earth that you're standing on, and see the other, uh, see the other solid beings. See the trees. Understand that is made up of the earth element. You can be with the water, the flow. You, know, the, you can be with the fire. You can feel the sun, feel your own heat. You have a sense of the inner and the outer. And then you can be with the air, the movement, what, you know, through your eyes, through your movement. So I'll invite that. If that's too much, you can just stay with the body and stay with the elements. Okay? So I'd like just a chance to explore this. Um, uh, I've had, I think I mentioned, uh, had a lot of fun with uh, collaborating with Heather, who I teach with you know, uh, tomorrow. And we do these dances outside where we contemplate the four elements inside and outside. We've actually did it, uh, last time we did it, we did it, uh, we did a retreat at Esalen. And we were over the, you know, we were like 20 feet away from the cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean on a bright sunny day, being with the elements, be okay, be with the earth elements, you know, and you feel the earth and feel the ground and feel it and feel it inside. Okay, be with the water and they feel the water inside and then we go out to the, mind goes out to the Pacific Ocean. Right? And then the fire, you know, feel the inner fire, and then it goes out to the sun. And it's, I, I found it glorious just to work in that way. And then, you know, and then with, the, with the air element. So it can be quite, quite beautiful you know, to, to do that. So I'll invite that. We'll ring a bell. Um, yeah, we'll ring a bell in about, to come back in about 25 minutes.